Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, my guest is Dr. Jean Liu. Dr. Jean Liu graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with degrees in biology and English and went on to earn her MD at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. She relocated to the Pacific Northwest to complete an internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, followed by a rheumatology fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle. She concurrently earned a Master's of Science in Epidemiology through the University of Washington School of Public Health. And during her fellowship, the primary focus of her research was in axial spondyloarthritis, specifically ankylosing spondylitis and cardiovascular comorbidities. She is currently the Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Rheumatology at Boston University where her clinical research focuses on knee osteoarthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. Additionally, as a member of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance and a member of its steering committee, she has led multiple projects relating to data collection, analysis, and dissemination of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on individuals with rheumatic disease. Dr. Liu, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have done a lot of really interesting research over the years. I've had a chance to take a look. And what we're going to talk about today as our topic is uh, the Spondylitis Association of America's Early Career Investigator Award. Uh, I'll give a high-level overview, and then we can dive into some questions around your research and, and really how you came down the path toward rheumatology and ankylosing spondylitis. So the Early Career Investigator Award is something the Spondylitis Association of America uh, provides every year to uh, rheumatologists who are early in their career and looking to expand horizons. As part of the ongoing mission of SAA, they look to expand horizons in spondyloarthritis research. The Spondylitis Association of America hopes to encourage new up-and-coming rheumatologists and researchers to focus on the future of treatment and research in ankylosing spondylitis and related diseases. To this end, we created the Spondylitis Association of America Raquel Early Career Investigator Award, which recognizes outstanding contributions to the care and understanding of patients with spondyloarthritis. The awardee receives a grant from Spondylitis Association of America for use in spondyloarthritis research, and the award named in honor of our co-founder, Jane Burkell, is given annually to the early career investigator who shows the most promise to contribute to the understanding or therapy of axial spondyloarthritis. Indeed, past awardees have gone on to be leaders in the spondyloarthritis research and education areas. And Dr. Liu, you were the winner this year. So uh, what is your involvement in research related to spondyloarthritis? Yeah, so I've been involved in spondyloarthritis research since um, 2018, and currently have multiple projects um, ongoing, but I think maybe it's easier to, to kind of start with, how did I get started? So um, 
by chance in um, at the American College of Rheumatology meeting in um, 2017, um, I ran into Leanne Gensler, who is um, a spondyloarthritis expert at UCSF, and she was the 2012 winner of this Brukel Award, um, I want to add. Um, and I that was the start of um, our mentor-mentee relationship. So in this chance meeting, um, we established this um, this relationship, and she started mentoring me um, in research in this specific area. And uh, very specifically, um, I worked on cardiovascular risk factors um, and spondyloarthritis. So those were my first projects that I did, um, the first research that I did with her using data from um, a cohort of patients that she um, has helped assembled. So that was a kind of the first area. And then from there, I have expanded my work um, to many other aspects of spondyloarthritis, um, including treatment, guidelines, management, um, just a, a lot of different things. So I think we could talk about some of uh, some of the specific projects or whatever would be would be best. We can do a little bit of both, but I I'm very glad to hear and very fascinated to hear the evolution of the connection with you and Dr. Gensler. That I don't know that we need to discuss it, but it's really a wonderful thing to hear how uh, from one, I know she's not an older woman, but from one generation <laughs> to the next, right? From we'll one generation. You'll have to cut the show hate, the show hate knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> get canceled. Uh, what were you focused on before spondyloarthritis out of curiosity? Um, so actually, if we go back into how I got into spondyloarthritis at all, not the research aspects, um, I actually had have a friend with ankylosing spondylitis. And before I even started medical school, she told me to consider becoming a rheumatologist. I didn't know what a rheumatologist was. So I am first generation, as in first generation to attend college, definitely medical school. Um, all I knew about doctoring and medicine was from reading books and watching TV. Grey's Anatomy started when I was a junior in high school and like I watched ER before that. That's all I knew. Um, so when this person who um, knew me and recommended that I look into this specialty that um, they felt was would um, would be a good fit for me um, personality wise, I really really um, strongly considered it because I, I said that's that's great because otherwise how do people even make a decision on what what field you choose because medicine is so vast, so broad, and um, you have to make so many decisions um, at all times what you're going to pursue because um, there are multiple le levels of training and then each level is many years long potentially. So um, entering medical school, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to do internal medicine, which is a broader field, um, broader specialty. And then after that, um, I will consider pursuing rheumatology, which is additional training after um, doing internal medicine residency. So in medical school, then I got to connect with a rheumatologist um, who wasn't doing, he wasn't a researcher, but he was, he was a really great clinician. And 
being able to watch him with patience and just watch the trust they had in him, watch him explain very complex things to patients. It was just really great. And he was just a really great role model. And that was just one of the things that really cemented um, this, this idea that I was going to become a rheumatologist. So it's actually very rare that people decide on rheumatology in medical school and rare still to have people who go into medical school thinking that they might become a rheumatologist. Perhaps if you have yourself um, are living with a rheumatic disease or know someone or have a family member living with a rheumatic condition, um, you might be more primed to um, consider rheumatology. But a lot of people in medicine um, don't really get what's what what cool things this field has to offer if you're a clinician, if you're a researcher, you're both. So all of that happened many, many years before I had that chance meeting with um, with Dr. Gensler. Um, so when I met her in 2017, I'd already been on this journey for since 2009. That was 2009 was when my friend told me I should look into becoming a rheumatologist. Well, thank your friend for us. <laughs> Maybe they're listening. I'm going to have her listen, actually. Absolutely. Uh, it's amazing. What do they say? You miss 100% of the chances you don't take. And sometimes just sharing with someone you think they'd be great at something changes people's lives. Uh, in your research, and you have done extensive research. There, You have a lot of research out there. And I think you're a problem solver also, which is something that uh, lends itself well to, to rheumatology. Uh, are there specific focus areas that you're working on right now? Yeah. So when I tell people about just my research in general, so I, I do clinical research. So I do, um, I look at data that comes from patients. Um, I don't work in the lab, so I don't work with, um, like chemicals or animal studies. Um, or things like that. I, I do data from patients in some sense, like um, either symptoms or um, lab tests or imaging um, data that come from patients. So that's the field of research I work in, clinical research. And then in that area, I do spondyloarthritis research, and then I do osteoarthritis research, specifically knee osteoarthritis research. And of course, I've been doing the COVID research as well. Um, so those are so those are my two or three areas um, in spondyloarthritis research. So I'm still doing some cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular risk work. So that's a broad category for me. Um, I'm doing a little bit. Um, looking at fracture risk osteoporosis um, with a colleague of mine. Um, actually, this colleague is is the 2018 winner of the Brukel Award, so we're all just a close-knit family here. More recently, I'm, I'm starting some work um, looking at chronic opioid use and pain in spondyloarthritis and seeing if um, any of the treatments um, other recommendations like exercise can change this this need to to use medications like opioids. So those are those are the the big things that I'm doing. Um, behind me, I have a whiteboard on my wall that's just taped on my wall with all my research projects and um, just trying to make sure I'm capturing everything. And then there are some bigger projects that. I am just a small part of, um, we are looking at referral recommendations for primary care providers for chronic back pain. Um, because as you know, um, 
diagnosis can be difficult and can take years for spondyloarthritis. So trying to figure out if there are any evidence-based, evidence-driven recommendations that we can give primary care providers so that they know to refer people with chronic back pain that have certain aspects or features to rheumatology for evaluation. That's a huge project that we're doing, and that's through Spartan um, Spinal Arthritis Research and Treatment Network. Um, and then the American College of Rheumatology is revising the guidelines um, for the treatment and management of spinal arthritis. So that's something that we're going to get started doing as well. Um, what else? What else am I doing? I have some collaborations looking at some little things that have to do with spinal arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. Um, and then I am um, a member of Spartan. I'm a member of ASAS. That's the, that's the International Society um, of Experts in Spinal Arthritis. And I um, do various things related to research and communications and I manage social media. Um, I do a lot of um, different things in the, in the field that may not be directly related to research. Do you sleep? Um, I, I sleep, I sleep a little bit. Yes. Um, a lot of, so I'm a really efficient person and, um, a really organized person. So I, I try to do everything. I try to fit a lot of big things into a short amount of time. I know that feeling. Uh, so will you, you will one of these projects, uh, be supported specifically by the early career investigator award? So um, my ongoing projects, all of these ongoing projects are, are um, currently supported by this because this award supports publications um, because um, when you publish things in, in journals, some of them require that you pay um, thousands of dollars to have, have the, the paper be available for everyone to read. And it's just, it's, it's a sad thing about science because a, a lot of times I hear patients, especially on Twitter, um, comment that they have no access to these papers about their, their conditions that they're living with. And they have to ask people to send them a link or email it to them. Um, and these fees can just be just, um, just huge. Um, so that, that is one part of where the funds are going also to support me working with um, trainees, um, people that I'm mentoring and just helping them out, um, as well as supporting um, travel to meetings to talk about this research and network with other people interested in spinal arthritis and um, start doing more collaborations with people so that we can do bigger things. I love the collaboration idea. The, the world is it's changing to where if we collaborate, I think we move mountains. Yeah. And with the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, we really learned that. So we recently just lost um, um, our founder and in, in the um, the lead of the GRA, Phil Robinson. He was a spinal arthritis um, expert in Australia. Um, he passed away suddenly at the beginning of the new year. Um, and it was really like his driving force that he was got all these people around the world to do something big and to to gather really important data to learn about how COVID um, affects people living with rheumatic disease. Um, something that just started with an idea on Twitter in March 2020. Um, and we, we learned so much. 
we got so much done, so many people working together remotely, something that just never happened before. He thought it could happen. He got in there and rolled his sleeves up and worked alongside us and made it happen. And it was just, um, was just an amazing thing. So if we learn, learn something from that experience is that we need to get keep these collaborations going. We spent so much time working together and got so much accomplished. Why can't we continue doing things together, doing things across so um, like across different countries and working together even remotely? Um, we don't have to be in the same room to to do big projects together. You know, I think that's fantastic. Although I do like, I do think the human interaction rolls it up on a, if you can be in the same room with some people. Uh, what is the saying? A small group of thoughtful people, thoughtful, committed people can change the world. <laughs> I think you're onto something. Uh, the, the other part is we all had a little more spare time during COVID. And I wonder if it's going to change. I just read a study that said the average average American got 72 extra minutes a day. Yeah. Yeah. So at the last ACR meeting, um, the new ACR president asked me what factors I thought led to the success of the GRA. And a big thing was that people who were researchers and people who were clinicians, um, suddenly their jobs just changed in a a big way and a lot of people had to stay home and um, either not work um, on things that they'd been working on altogether or they had to work in different ways. So it was that we were all kind of blocked from our usual duties that we had time to funnel all this energy into doing this project. Um, but for those of us who continue as researchers, um, we have we have funded time to to do this kind of work. Um, that is part of our jobs. Um, so if we can harness the, the collaborations and the, the things we learned about working remotely effectively, we can do those things. Um, then I think we can figure out new and innovative ways of, of doing research that, that is helpful to people. That's amazing. Uh, so when you, I, I would love to come back to the work you're doing around uh, research around opioids. Can you tell okay. us a little bit about that? And then we can dive a little more into a couple other patient style discussions. Yeah, so um, pain is, as as you know, it's a, it's a pretty predominant symptom of um, having spondyloarthritis and um, the pain is caused in part by the inflammation um, in spine and other joints. Um, and when we bring down the inflammation with medications um, like biologic medications, um, like um, TNF inhibitors, that um, reduces the pain, reduces the symptoms, but there are people who, despite being on these very effective medications, still have some remaining residual pain that really affects their quality of life, affects um, what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and we don't have a good enough understanding of what's driving this pain. And then because we don't have a good enough understanding of what's driving this pain, we don't have um, a good um, understanding of what to recommend to, to really treat that pain. So um, in the absence of knowing like specific targets um, to to reduce pain, um, many people have to 
take medications um, that are known as painkillers, um, and these include opioid medications. So these are like hydrocodone, um, oxycodone, medications like that, tramadol. And these are not things that remove the pain, remove the source of the pain. Um, they just basically um, kind of block the pain for some short amount of time. But um, they, um, you can develop, the body can develop a dependence on them so that you end up needing higher and higher doses. And then some people who have um, other medical conditions or who are older, having to take higher and higher doses of these medications can be really risky because it can um, cause sleepiness, it can cause um, mental issues, like issues with thinking, sedation, can cause falls, um, can, can affect even your breathing. So this is, these are all reasons why it would be really great if we could figure out ways um, apart from use of opioid medications to, to treat pain effectively. And would that be clinical research as well? So it's, so it's clinical research. It's also basic science research. But from the clinical research angle, um, I can ask questions like, if you start TNF inhibitors, these are biologics, start them earlier compared to not starting them earlier or not starting them at all, does that reduce the, the risk of um, needing to be on chronic opioid medication? So being on things like oxycodone, hydrocodone long-term. So um, I can take um, information from a lot of individuals um, in a database, like an insurance database, where I can figure out if these people have a diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. I can figure out if they were ever um, prescribed um, a TNF inhibitor, like um, a Tanercept, um, infliximab or others, I can figure out if they were ever prescribed opioid medications for um, six months or longer. Um, and then we can run these studies using statistical modeling to try to get at the answer to that question. Um, so that's one of the ways that we're trying to answer the question. Another way could be if you exercise or do physical activity at a certain duration or frequency or intensity every week um, compared to someone who doesn't do that, does that um, make you less likely to need chronic opioids to treat your pain? So these are just questions using um, data from or about um, people living with spondyloarthritis to try to answer this question. Um, other ways you could answer the question would be designing a trial where you um, gave one group of people some treatment or some treatment recommendation and had another group um, that didn't do that treatment or treatment recommendation. And you tried to figure out by following them over some period of time if their pain um, gets better and stays better. Interesting. I, I love the, the power of data with the electronic health records that we now have that we didn't have really 15, 20 years ago, maybe even right. five years ago, uh, we've really been able to harness it. So when you do actual uh, like intense clinical research, what is one of the questions I think listeners are always interested in is, what is a patient's involvement in a piece of research potentially, or would they 
would they actively be involved in a in a research study? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question, and there are a lot of different ways to answer this. So, um, I I think in Europe and um, in the UK, patient involvement in research is more um, it's more standard and um, it's more part of research protocols, and it might be in the US. So in um, a lot of scientific journals, they have um, a part that you have to fill out asking about the specific patient involvement in that research project. Um, but um, one way that someone could be involved in research or clinical research is um, being part of a study, like a trial where you um, might get assigned a medication or some treatment um, to be on, and then you would come back for follow-up and answer questions, get tests done, maybe get imaging done to see um, how you responded to that treatment. So that's one way that a lot of um, people might get involved in research, um, but that's as a participant in a study. Um, another way, and I think is a question that you're asking is how can um, a patient, a person living with this condition, um, interact with the researchers to help them do their research. Um, and I am trying to learn more about the avenues, um, both for patients to get involved, as well as for researchers to reach out to interested patients to involve them in specific studies. So the most direct way that I have had um, this involvement, and this is how I worked with Rich, um, although it's not how I met Rich initially. I met Rich um, in 2018 um, at a Spartan meeting, actually, but um, it was through the GRA. So we had a very active, we have a very active patient board, um, and we have a lot of projects that are driven and led by um, patients um, in the GRA. So um, for example, we have teams that work on communications, translations, um, plain language summaries or lay summaries, which are summaries of our research publications that are in language that um, people can understand without any kind of medical or scientific knowledge. So these are all these were all ways that um, these patients um, have been involved in our research projects, and also um, in our major projects out of the GRA, we've had um, one or two patients. Um, just directly involved from the start um, in advising on the project. So when you start a clinical research project, you start with a research question or set of questions, and then you start designing your study. You decide who is who is going to be in the study, what questions are you going to ask. If you're collecting data, collecting information, what do you collect? How do you collect it? What outcomes do you care about? How are you going to measure them? So that's like the first very important part of things before you even um, really start the study. Um, and then involve, involving patients um, every step of the way. Um, we get the data, we're looking at the results, we're trying to understand the results, we are discussing the results, um, and then we're presenting the results um, maybe in some meeting um, with other scientists, rheumatologists, and then we're publishing the results in the journal. And then when that is done, we're making that plain language summary so that everyone can read about it. So um, through that, um, through that, I learned about um, all the ways, or not all the ways, but some of the ways that patients can really be involved in clinical research. 
Um, but again, the GRA was this very unique thing where um, everything sort of came together. So many people were interested and um, like these multiple groups formed and it was not hard to find an interested patient or group of patients that wanted to be involved in one of the projects. That's cool. And I'll do a small plug for spondylitis.org here. Uh, there is a section on here if you are a listener or a patient who's interested in being part of research. There is a whole section on the website that lists uh, participate in research. But I think that's fantastic. And then uh, one question uh, I think is really interesting that has come up before from patients is how is general research different? How is medical research different from general medical care? Um, I was trying to understand that question. So medical care would be if you are going to see a doctor, going to a clinic, going to a hospital, um, and you're talking to a, a like a clinician, um, and they're giving you recommendations or giving you a treatment or um, ordering some tests. Um, and that's just a one on one basis where it's about your health and just about you specifically. Um, research is about, um, it may not be about directly providing um, care or treatment to a person. Um, it's about trying to understand for a group of people with the same condition or a group of people with the same condition in the same, um, same features. Um, what, how can we, how can we basically provide them better care? So I guess medical research is about more than just the individual person. It's about a, a group of people, population of people, and how can we provide them even better care than what they're getting? Or we could be studying um, with the kind of care they're getting now, what are their outcomes like? And it's safe to say that if a patient comes in, they would know whether or not they're part of a research study. Oh yeah, you can't, so you cannot be in a research study without knowing that you're in a research study that would not, that would not be appropriate. You have to provide cons informed consent. Um, someone has to explain to you that you're in a research study and explain to you what the research study will require you to do and what are the harms and potential benefits to you. So um, I, I will say that if your, your, your information are collected um, as part of a medical record and um, it's no longer attached to your name, that that um, can be part, become part of a research study, but your name has nothing to do with that information anymore. And when we do those types of studies, we're looking at thousands, tens of thousands of people. So um, the risk of your information getting out there is um, low and um, it's also protected by a lot of, um, a lot of, um, hmm, how should I say this? There are a lot of protections um, against for that type of research so that people's actual information remains confidential and never gets out. It's the power of data again, right? Yes, it's, yeah, so it's data, it's your data, but it no longer is connected to you anymore. And it just becomes one piece of, a, of like a, a giant thing. Yeah. Um, but but there should be no risk to you to have your data used, like, analyzed in that way. 
Um, and then there are also research studies where you are you are consenting to actually um, give your your data, like provide blood or provide your time, provide answers to questions, that kind of thing. Um, so there is also that kind of study. Okay, great. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, anything else you want to talk about highlight wise of what you're working on or what you see is bright for the future? Um, I mean, we could always loop back to the mentorship piece because I wrote about that in my personal statement for this award. And I mean, I really believe in, I really believe in that. And we were talking about um, how I met Dr. Gensler and how she's functioned as both a mentor and a sponsor for me. So a mentor is someone who, um, has this like close relationship with you, teaches you, guides you, advises you on things, advises you on your research, helps make your research better, but also advises you on your career and um, maybe like what job you should take next. Um, she actually did help me with that um, because I was in Seattle before and then I made the move to Boston. But as a sponsor, as someone who um, has um, power to give you opportunities that open new doors for you. And she did that as well. So she um, had me go to these big meetings where I get to network with international experts in spondyloarthritis. Um, she got me on like a paper from the very beginning um, that really got me started, just just things like that. She, she knows what um, awards and grants are out there and got me applying, including to this one. Um, so it's just really important because when you have the luck um, to meet someone like that who like um, gets you and like wants to support you, um, it really helps because it's a really hard road to be to do research. Um, you're basically trying to fundraise your own salary um, much of the time. There's a lot of rejection. Um, getting a grant, um, getting the funding to do research and to support your salary. Um, some of the big grants, it's only a 10% chance of getting it. Um, it takes can take six months to write one. You're trying to do this. You're trying to take care of patients. You're trying to do your research. Um, you don't sleep. So it's, it's a hard road. And it really relies on people who, um, who take some extra time out of their schedule that they're not sleeping um, and um, helping guide you. So um, for the next generation, for the people I'm mentoring, um, I want to be able to be that person for people. And I think part of that is realizing that to do it well, you can't overextend yourself and try to mentor too many people. Um, but you need to be thoughtful in what you do, what you can do for each person. Sometimes I'm mentoring, sometimes I'm sponsoring, so I'm giving opportunities um, and I'm becoming that senior person um, who, who can help lift other people up because there aren't that many people doing spondyloarthritis research in the world or and especially not that many in the US. Um, and we need more people because there are a lot of unanswered questions. There are a lot of ways that spondyloarthritis can be treated better. Um, we can always improve. And for that to really happen is that you you need to lift up more people who, who can take up that charge and, and keep doing it and try to make things better. Yeah, and somewhere recently I read a stat that said 63% of women have never been mentored. Yeah, there's a there's another article I, I read on Twitter. I'm big on Twitter, by the way. Um, I, despite some other issues going on with Twitter, I, I still think it's worthwhile to um, use it. 
But um, there was another article I was reading about mentoring, and it, it was talking about how women tend to be also over-mentored, but under-sponsored. So um, someone who is on, in a position of power, and given the way things are structurally, it's probably a man who's in that position of power, a man who's a senior person. Um, that man would probably more likely recommend um, a young or junior man over a woman, um, but women may be may have lots of mentors, but never that sponsorship that helps pull them up and um, gives them a seat at the table. You need someone suggesting you for the big roles, um, nominating you for awards, things like that. Um, mentorship can help you um, navigate through things, difficult decisions, um, but mentorship is not. Um, Mentorship doesn't do everything. You're making me ask myself a question if some of the gaps in opportunity by seniority and opportunity by gender and ethnicity are are created out of that sponsorship versus mentorship. Right. And the people who are <laughs> senior and like in positions of leadership, um, if they all look around and they see a room and everyone looks like them, they don't think about who's missing. You have to think about, um, oh, I'm just looking at the message. You have to think about, you have to think about what's, um, what's missing so that if you don't ever think about who's missing in the room, you can't improve that. Um, you can't make it better. You can't improve the diversity and inclusivity if you don't if you think oh we're already good we're we're fine we're we're as diverse as we possibly can be we've already asked all the people who have um the expertise and the know-how to do this thing and it's no you always have to keep looking um and if the people you don't see them um you need to think well where in the pipeline are we losing people um yeah where a, where can we mentor people so that's going to land me on my final question uh, related to inclusion within research. We had a guest on recently talking about uh, much of the literature out there on spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis was primarily done on men. Uh, how does this, how does your research, are you working toward inclusivity and including different genders and ethnicities? Okay, so I actually left this out and I feel bad. Um, so my work with my colleague, Maureen Dubrell, who is a 2018 Brukel winner, um, right. part of this is about addressing diagnostic delay, but also about racial and ethnic disparities um, leading to a delayed diagnosis in spondyloarthritis. Um, so the part of the problem is that in medical school, we're taught this is a this is a condition that affects young men. So men in their 20s and 30s. So you're always thinking about young men, white men, perhaps. Um, and then that leads to a lot of um, people not thinking about um, something like ankylosing spondylitis when they see someone who's a person of color or someone who is not a man in their office. Um, and it's not through some sort of like ne negligent reason. Um, it's just because when you are taught something and it's like in your brain, it's hard to get out of that sort of thinking. But why are we taught this? And is it because we are, our research in the beginning, this old research from decades ago was flawed. Um, and I think that might part might be part of it. Um, for example, um, the thinking that um, 
having ankylosing spondylitis or spondyloarthritis is virtually absent in people with African ancestry. But do we really know this? Are there really good studies, really like quality studies of epidemiology um, in people um, of African ancestry that can really answer this question? And we don't have quality studies like that. Um, so if you get your data from poor studies, um, poorly designed studies or studies that were designed at a time where like you really couldn't study something that rigorously and you use that to teach people generations and generations of doctors then everyone just thinks that this is the truth but it may not be what's actually the case and that's how you miss people and not diagnose them in time until it becomes very very obvious and in many cases um, that means this person is very severe disease. Thank you for that and fighting the fight. <laughs> yeah, and actually um, I'm part of a mentorship team for someone um, who is a trainee um, at my alma mater um, in Seattle, the University of Washington. And this is someone who actually has a PhD in sociology um, and they have an interest in disparities um, by race and ethnicity. And their research is actually also in this area. So they are um, doing doing some um, interviews to find out what barriers people have faced in their diagnosis um, pathway, their pathway to getting diagnosed with arthritis. It's not my research, so I'm not going to speak at length about it, but it's going to be very impactful work um, when it's finished because um, something like this, you'd think someone would have studied it already, but surprisingly, no. But um, this person is... Um, doing some, some things that hopefully we can get out there um, and we can get people to face um, the biases biases that um, they might have implicitly when, when they're trying to diagnose people. That's great work. I love that. Okay, so I will make sure this is my final question. What's okay. your, do you have one piece of advice you, you give to patients above all else? Um, what is my advice? Um, I mean, I think I think my advice is letting let me know if you have questions, if you think of questions or you think of something that you didn't ask me, um, just let me know as it comes up. Maybe that's not the the most pivy of advice, uh, but it that's I think that's something I always say because having someone feel feel comfortable speaking up and asking questions is important because the worst thing is um, they keep it to themselves and wait three months to ask me or don't want to tell me something. Um, I'd rather just know and try to answer the question. And if it's a question I can't answer, um, I'll try my best to um, ask someone else who might know. But being able to ask questions and just having this, um, having this sort of relationship, um, patient-doctor relationship, um, is important. So it's not really medical advice. It's not like everyone should eat more like vegetables. Although, you know, I think eating healthier is, is also something that is a general recommendation that you could give. Um, but I think um, feel free to ask questions and then feel free to just let me know if something's working or not working. Yeah. And this goes back, I'll land on this. It goes back to your what seems to be your ethos, which is collaborative care and collaborative advancement of the disease, right? I love that. I like that advice a lot. I don't think enough 
patients advocate for themselves after they walk out of the room? I think a lot of people are beginning to, but um, I think there's disparities there too, because there, it could be cultural, could be other reasons. Um, and I think we, well, the people who are responsible for like the the systems of communication need to work on this because it could be really hard for someone to actually talk to me and tell me that something is not going well with their new medication. If someone is connected to a patient portal and they can just type me a message and I can see it in the same day, um, it'll be easy for that person. But for someone else who may not have computer access or can't speak um, English well enough to like call and navigate the phone tree, it can be really hard. Um, and it's it's up to us to figure out how to ask the system to fix itself to fix the system so that it it's more equitable for everyone to like um, be able to do this. Um, like I often call people to follow up with them, knowing that they probably would not be able to easily tell me if something was not going right with their medication. But um, that's it's very hard to do that for a large number of people. So. Yeah. Um, while I give that as advice, I also have to recognize that it's not, it's easier said than done. Yeah. All right. Well, that should land it. Thank you so very much. This has been wonderful. I love listening on the research side. And again, thank you for your commitment to the community. It's much Thanks. appreciated. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.